I'd like to welcome you to our webcast, Classroom Management Supports for ADHD Behaviors in Early Childhood Education Settings with Dr. Desiree Murray. The National Resource Center is a program of CHAD and funded by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which provides reliable science-based information about current medical research and ADHD management. Today's webcast is part of our Ask the Expert series Educator Edition, providing information to teachers and educators working with children and youth who have ADHD. If you're looking for further information and resources about today's topic or ADHD in general, we have health information specialists available Monday through Friday between 1 and 5 p.m. Eastern Time. You can reach them at 800-233-4050. It is a pleasure to introduce today's guest expert, Dr. Desiree Murray. Dr. Murray is a prevention scientist and licensed clinical psychologist with the Frank Porter Graham Child Development Institute at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. She researches self-regulation development and evaluates social-emotional interventions for students with disruptive behavior, including ADHD. Her interests include training teachers and mental health professionals in evidence-based interventions and implementation of programs in schools to support students' self-regulation. Again, we are pleased to welcome our guest expert, Desiree Murray. Thank you, Robin. Um, nice to be here today, and um, I look forward to any questions that um, listeners have. I think there should be plenty of time for that um, at the end of the presentation. I do want to just briefly um, give a disclosure related to my background in training um, teachers and early childhood professionals. Um, I am a mentor in the Incredible Years Teacher Classroom Management Program, so I will be giving a few examples of strategies from that program simply because I know it best. Um, that it, there are certainly other programs that provide similar trainings and consultations, so um, wanted to mention that up front. So the agenda for today is um, going to go through four different topics. First off, um, thinking about what ADHD behaviors um, look like in early childhood settings and what can we understand about them in a way that will give us some ideas about how we might approach those um, effectively um, given where we think some of those uh, difficulties may be coming, th coming from. I'll spend a few minutes talking about classroom structures and teacher practices that support positive behaviors and the development of self-regulation because those two really do go together. Um, I will talk about some effective approaches or principles to using incentives and um, creating uh, a discipline plan for, for young kids with ADHD behaviors. And then I'll finish up by talking about some ways to actually um, teach self-regulation. Um, so again, sort of overall, my primary focus today is going to be on principles of some of those approaches, and part of the reason for that is I think in this series there will be some upcoming webinars that are really going to dive a little bit more deep, deeply into different strategies, but I think this will provide a really nice foundation and overview for thinking about um, approaching um, uh, behaviors for young kids with ADHD behaviors. 
So what might some of those behaviors be um, that you may be concerned about in your classroom? Well, probably the one that um, we hear the most is just simply difficulty sitting still and always being um, on the go, which can be disruptive in the classroom or exhausting. Um, there's noise making, blurting out, and simply being loud, um, again, um, can sort of interfere with um, teacher trying to get the class through a routine or complete an activity. You may also be concerned about kind of an emotional component related to difficulty waiting um, or just really easily being frustrated. And, and we know for young kids when they're easily frustrated, oftentimes they don't have the words to really articulate that. So what you see instead is you see them falling apart in their behavior, maybe having tantrums. Um, not following directions or forgetting the rules, um, whether or not they forgot them, um, if you ask them to explain the rule is actually not the really important part. The, the critical piece is that um, being able to actually inhibit whatever impulses they're having so that they can follow rules, that's actually the really important piece here. Um, you may also see some of these behaviors when um, kids are working with quiet activities or on projects in the classroom, and you may see that they really have some difficulty sticking with that. So they may not be able to get, get something completed that the other kids in the classroom can, or they may start it and, again, they may become easily frustrated if it's a, a new or a challenging task that they haven't done before. And then, of course, some of the behaviors that teachers are most concerned with have to do with things that may look aggressive, which oftentimes are, again, sort of driven by impulsivity. Um, kids who are having trouble keeping their hands to themselves would be the positive reframe of behaviors like hitting, kicking, or, or biting. One of the things that I think <coughs> distinguishes ADHD behaviors from other types of, of behaviors is that oftentimes if it is ADHD that's driving the behavior, you actually can see kids, even pretty young kids, that have some, some remorse about that. So um, I have a nephew, for example, who, who can get very wound up and very impulsive and loud, and, um, and he will hit adults, um, not with an aggressive intent to hurt them, but because he's not able to control his impulses. And, he also has trouble because he doesn't have the words and language for that. He's still four. Um, but what he does is he goes and hides under a table. So um, really sort of telling you with his behavior um, that he is feeling badly about that, but really that was a behavior he had difficulty controlling. So what are some causes of ADHD behavior? So I put ADHD in quotes here um, because, um, as some of you may know from some of the other um, webinars or other material that, um, that Chad puts out, is that ADHD is really primarily a descriptive disorder. That is, it's diagnosed when there's a certain number of symptoms and impairment that occurs across time and settings. And we know that these things, hyperactivity, attention span, that really occurs along a continuum. And in young kids, in three and four-year-olds, it's really hard to kind of draw that line and give a diagnosis. Um, What's actually, the good news about that is that regardless of what the contributors are to those behaviors in a particular child, the things that teachers can do that will help are actually exactly the same. 
Um, so certainly, if a child um, really uh, does have ADHD or um, ends up being diagnosed with ADHD when they're a little bit older, um, there's often a significant biological or genetic component. So this is sort of the temperament piece. Some kids are just um, hardwired, we might say, to be more active and, and sensation-seeking. Um, and ADHD, in fact, is, is quite um, heritable. What we are learning um, in the last 10 or 20 years with um, some of the ways that research has advanced to allow us to really understand at the neurobiological level what's going on, what we're learning is that the environment, and by saying environment, I, I mean a lot of things, including um, the classroom environment, including the home environment, including stress and adversity in the environment, all of those things actually can impact kids on a neurobiological level, um, particularly young kids, um, which is, as you know, early childhood is a time of really tremendous brain development. And so we actually know that some of those environmental influences, those adverse experiences, can actually um, cause some impact uh, to brain structure and function that will then make it more difficult for kids to pay attention and, and control impulses, exactly the things that we think of in terms of um, ADHD. Um, so that's important to, to keep in mind as well. Um, a couple of other things I think are important that I want to point out in this slide is that um, we often um, see kids who are having difficulties with behavior, and it often seems apparent that it's because there are things their caregivers aren't doing or aren't doing in the right way. And, and certainly, there absolutely are kids who are not getting a lot of attention at home, um, who have trouble connecting with other adults based upon their experience. Um, and, and in fact, those are things that can contribute to some of those behavior difficulties. Usually, I think, when caregivers are stressed, it's usually for good reasons in terms of things that um, the parents are actually dealing with in their own lives um, and their own adversity. So I want to make that point as well. There's usually reasons that caregivers are stressed. And usually, um, when we think about reaching out and helping kids, the more we can think about reaching out and helping or supporting their parents, the better that's going to be for the child. And then the last point here is that there's certainly kids that do have developmental or language delays. And that can actually sometimes look very much like an ADHD behavior when a child doesn't seem to listen um, or understand or just really has some other significant developmental delays. So again, lots of things that can look like ADHD, but the bottom line here is it really doesn't matter what's contributing for any particular child because what you're going to do to approach that child is exactly the same. My next slide is just to reiterate on the point I think I made a moment ago, which is um, just how we are learning and how striking this data is on how stress can really impact attention and behavior. So um, probably within the last 10 years, um, most of this research and, and references have been done um, connecting ADHD behaviors with adverse childhood experiences. Some of you may be familiar with these things. Um, uh, sort of a classic uh, list of 10 different adverse childhood experiences. It could be any sort of physical, sexual, emotional abuse, 
having parents who have separated or divorced or having a family member who's an alcoholic, depressed, or um, maybe in prison, being exposed to domestic violence, sort of that's sort of the typical list. And we actually see some correlations between those things, between poverty and food insecurity. So food insecurity means kids who can't predict, predict um, that they're regularly going to have enough to eat. And in fact, those things are correlated um, with ADHD behavior. So just sort of underscoring the point I made earlier, and just to um, make a note that if you're interested in this topic, and this it might be particularly interesting um, to you if you're working in a setting that provides care for a lot of low-income families who we know are going to experience more significant stress in their daily life and major life events. This may be something that you might be interested in looking into a little bit more. And so one um, resource for that is there's a lot of great material at the Center for the Developing Child at Harvard. So I mentioned that. Okay, so what does all of this mean for understanding challenging ADHD behaviors? Well, one of the important take-home points for today is that a lot of those challenging ADHD behaviors, I think, really reflect delayed self-regulation. So I'm going to talk about that a little bit. But by self-regulation, what we're talking about are difficulty sustaining attention difficulty delaying gratification, inhibiting impulses, impulses with your, um, with your body, with what you're saying, with your energy, um, and also the ability to regulate emotion. So it sounds a lot like ADHD. Um, and so because of those delays, it is often the case that the, the behaviors you see that can cause big problems in a classroom, um, that those things are often for the ADHD child, not typically willful or intentional. Generally, if kids could behave, they would. Um, and um, sometimes what we see is simply that their, their behavior that is causing such a problem is really an attempt to communicate or it's, a, it's an attempt to solve a problem without the necessary skills to solve it effectively. So that sort of their behavior is getting stuck. Um, the other thing we know about kids is that um, their behavior generally serves a purpose. Um, so that purpose might be the attention it gets from their teachers, from peers, or maybe they're getting out of something they really don't like to do. Um, generally, kids repeat behaviors because there's something they get out of it. That doesn't mean that they're manipulative. It's just really just an entirely logical way to behave. Most of us actually probably do the same thing. So, But those are helpful things to think about because if you think about what is it the child is gaining from a particular behavior, sometimes that can really inform um, the particular um, intervention approach that you might want to use. Okay, so what are some of the implications of delayed self-regulation with ADHD behaviors? Well, first off, um, part of what that means is that oftentimes behavior is going to be really inconsistent. So Russell Barkley, that some of you may be familiar with, who's written an, an, a lot for many years on ADHD, says that inconsistency is actually a hallmark feature of ADHD. So it's really not so much that kids with ADHD aren't, aren't able to listen and follow directions, but what they can't do is listen and follow directions consistently. And so that really creates a lot of frustration on the parts of parents and teachers because if they can do it on some days or at some times in certain situations, um, it, it seems as if they ought to be capable of doing it 
um, in other situations. But in fact, that's exactly what the challenge of ADHD is about, is that the ADHD separates the knowledge of what to do from the ability to do it. So in other words, kids with ADHD know what to do, but can't do what they know. That's another Russell Barkley quote. Um, another implication um, is that the typical strategies that early childhood professionals may use in their classrooms don't work or may not work as well with young kids with ADHD behaviors. And there's actually a lot of good reasons for this. Um, first off, as um, is implied from some of what I've been talking about, um, kids with ADHD behaviors really need more structure and support than other kids their age, um, maybe even more than you think they, um, they should. They also need uh, more learning trials. Um, so what I mean by that is that, you know, with young kids, no, no young child learns any one thing in, uh, with one-time practice. It takes repeated track practice. Um, I heard uh, one of my colleagues say 30 to 300 learning trials to learn to do something like uh, um, uh, raise your hand in circles, for example. Keep in mind that young kids with ADHD are actually going to need more learning trials than that. So um, they're going to be the type of kids that are really just the long-term project kids. So you may uh, work on them all year long, and um, there's still room for improvement. They may just simply be passed along to the next year's teacher to continue making progress that feels slow, but will be progress. Uh, progress always moves forward. Um, all of these things certainly means that, that kids with ADHD and ADHD behaviors can be really challenging, really difficult to like. Uh, the positive news here and the spin I want to put on things today is that some of these self-regulation skills really can be taught. Um, we know that. We have a lot of good research, a number of studies um, of preschoolers and um, so there's some there's some things that that can work and and can uh, can be of benefit. One of the things I will add here that is sometimes helpful for teachers to think about is that um, kids with ADHD um, might be considered about 30% less mature than their peers. Um, and um, that was sort of a Russell Barkley rule of thumb uh, for many years. And, and again, recently we have actually some neurobiological data that lines up and says, yep, it looks like it's about 30% if you're talking about uh, maturity of brain structures and function that are, that are in the frontal lobe and related to inhibitory control and those sorts of things. So what that means, again, the implication for you all in your classrooms is that let's say you have a four-and-a-half-year-old in your class. Um, with ADHD behaviors, it means that their self-regulation abilities are going to be more like that of an early three-year-old. And that's just kind of important to think about in terms of expectations and in terms of um, how you might approach them. All right, so moving into um, some approaches, um, and we'll start with classroom structures and teacher practices. I will move through these fairly quickly because I expect you're probably pretty familiar with them, but they're, they're nonetheless really important. They really are the foundation of any sort of intervention program or behavior plan that you might want to try for a particular child. And if, they, if these things are not in place, then 
all your fancy behavior plans actually aren't going to work. So these are actually things that are worth, worth spending time on. So here's a little classroom structure checklist, and um, I guess you all will have access to these slides, so you can look back at this one if you want to spend some more time with it. Um, this is just sort of summarizing some of those good structural types of things, like thinking about circle and how the child with ADHD may need that spot in the circle defined. Maybe you have a carpet square, maybe masking tape to define personal space. Maybe you really work in your class about talking about the bubble that they have around them when they walk in line, where they um, maybe they everybody practices having their um, hands together when they're walking. Um, across the hallway. Um, certainly things like uh, keeping your challenging child in proximity. Um, calm down areas. So um, I mentioned calm down area here um, not as a uh, punishment, um, but as a defined, quiet, private place in the classroom where the child who is um, Feeling wound up or frustrated might be able to go to um, try and practice some calm down strategies, perhaps some calm down strategies that you have taught them. Perhaps you have some um, items in there, some multi-sensory items, music, glitter sticks, things like that that would help them. That's, a, that's again, a great skill for them to lose, use um, and learn and um, a structure you can set up that supports that. Um, of course, daily routines, um, routines for lots of things, maybe even things that you don't think you need or ought to have routines for. Young kids thrive on routines, as I'm sure you know. And again, for the child with ADHD, it makes more, much more of a difference than it does for another child. Um, similar things with transitions. Transitions are often a time where kids with ADHD um, find themselves in trouble because there's just naturally less structure during those times. So the more you can shorten those transitions, the more you can do to give a warning about those transitions and um, perhaps even uh, have that child next to you during the transition next to a positive peer model, those sorts of things will be helpful. Um, rules, of course, um, in the classroom are always helpful um, for, the, for the young child with ADHD. They're going to need those rules taught and retaught and retaught and reviewed and re-reviewed and practiced. Um, over and over again for the reasons that we are talking about before. Um, and of course, how you frame your expectations and how you give instructions and how clear they are, um, if they are firm, if they are brief, if they are stated in terms of what you want the child to do, like I want you to raise your hand rather than stop blurting out. Those are all things that actually make a difference in terms of a child's behavior. In circle time, um, you know, a rule of thumb here is to really think about, well, how long is that child's attention span, the one I'm having the most trouble with? How long do I really think he can sit and listen to this story? Okay, so if I know it's about five minutes, then what that tells me is that I need to keep my circle time to no more than five minutes. Um, and if I don't, if there's some reason I don't have to, I just need to be mindful that I'm kind of setting them up to have some difficulties and I might want to have a plan for that. I might want to do a wiggle break, for example, halfway through. I might want them to get them to be a helper, to stand up, to hold my book. Um, other sorts of strategies like teach, really teaching those explicit listening strategies. Um, 
Nonverbal signals are really helpful for ADHD kids. So if you think about all the different learning modalities that kids have, um, for ADHD kids in particular, um, learning through listening is not going to be the area of strength. So the more that you can use nonverbal signals or, for example, um, one of the strategies in the Incredible Years program that I work with is um, um, they have a set of rules cards, and you know you can find these things online if you don't already have some. Um, but rules cards that can be used to give a visual reminder and a prompt, um, those have a lot of advantages, number one, because it's not expecting that child to process um, auditory information, um, but also because it just helps it helps make it more um, concrete and because you can then give that child a redirection in the middle of circle time without disrupting um, your ongoing um, instruction. So strategic attention, what do I mean by use your attention strategically? Um, well, there's two pieces to that. There's one piece which is about praising and catching the child being good and catches in quotes because sometimes with young kids with ADHD, you, you really do have to be on the lookout. Um, and um, I would encourage you to do that because kids with ADHD are actually the kids that um, don't get praised as often with other kids and in fact probably ought to be praised more. Um, so if you want to do that, um, you really do have to catch it. You have to look for it. Um, it. Certainly if your goal is to praise four times as often as redirection or correction, which is actually a really important, um, uh, an important goal if you're um, really trying to build a positive um, behavior plan or discipline plan. Again, it's, it's part of that um, positive foundation which really motivates kids to learn um, and motivates them through their relationship with you. Um, but the other aspect to using attention strategically has to do with ignoring. So it's not only giving positive attention and praising um, the behaviors you do like and you want to see more of, but also ignoring those minor inappropriate behaviors. There's an awful lot of behaviors, um, particularly if it's a behavior you don't think the child necessarily can control, but maybe it's attention seeking. Um, those sorts of behaviors actually really respond very well to um, actively removing your attention from that behavior. It doesn't mean that you're ignoring the child. It just means that you're ignoring the behavior. You may choose to redirect the behavior, um, and then you may look for the next positive thing you can praise for that child. Um, so the pictures here are um, uh, the metaphor that, um, that I like to use. Um, it's it's uh, used in the Incredible Years program as well, um, which is about um, watering the flowers in your classroom uh, being a metaphor for um, showering lots of praise upon those positive behaviors that you see um, and that you want to grow in your classroom. Um, and you want to do, you don't want to do the second picture, picture, which is supposed to be, if you can tell, it's supposed to be a picture of watering the weeds. So the metaphor for the day is don't water the weeds in your classroom. Be strategic about your attention. So for effective use of incentives, um, many kids with ADHD um, uh, may well need some incentives. Um, an incentive doesn't necessarily mean a prize box. There's lots of different types of incentives or, or ways you can motivate kids. But what we know about kids with ADHD is that um, sometimes the praise doesn't sink in or it's not as powerful enough, again, probably because it's all verbal. 
Um, sometimes we really have to use our megaphone with praise for ADHD kids. Um, so incentives are really helpful because they're a more powerful way to encourage positive behaviors. And of course, an incentive is to get the child to do that one or two at a time positive behaviors that you want them to be working on in a really small, achievable way. Um, one of the things, again, that we are sort of um, learning from, um, from neuroscience that's, that's helpful to think about is that what the role is that incentives serve is that they sort of provide a behavioral scaffolding for the child. Um, so because they're this extra powerful um, uh, incentive and motivator, they help the child to do a behavior um, let's say sit quietly or raise their hand or keep their hands to themselves to allow them to do that behavior for a longer period or to do it better um, than they are able to on their own at this time. Um, and what we know happens, what we know happens when learning um, occurs in the brain is that connections are made between neurons when neurotransmitters fire, when behaviors are repeated enough. Um, the, the neurons simply they extend towards each other and they make these connections that make the behavior easier to occur in the future. So actually what you are doing with your incentive um, system is that you are um, providing um, an opportunity to kickstart a behavior so the child gets some experience, some learned practice that allows them to better able to do that behavior on their own. Now that being said, incentives are really great for kickstarting a behavior you're working on, but incentives are designed to be faded. So after a particular behavior is established and the child is doing it consistently, then you want to think about fading it. Not stopping it completely all of a sudden one day, but fading it so you might go from a prize box, let's say, to a sticker, or you might go from a sticker to you're just going to do a special celebration with symbols in the classroom or something like that. Um, the other thing that I would encourage you to think about with young kids um, in particular is to keep whatever incentive system you're using to keep it separate from punishment. Um, several good reasons for that. I, I could talk more about that during Q&A if that's of interest to any of you. All right, so discipline. Um, what are some things to think about in terms of effective discipline plans with young kids with ADHD? Well, the first point um, I've already made a couple times, I'll repeat it one more time, is that um, effective discipline plans are really um, uh, based on positive, proactive classroom management. Um, so, for example, if you are planning to use timeout, which can actually be a very effective strategy with young kids um, with ADHD um, in particular, um, then um, if, you, if your classroom is not sort of set up in terms of having a high rate of praise and being reinforcing and being positive and having this positive structures in place, time actually won't work or won't work as well. And so all of these things really build upon each other. Um, the IY metaphor for that is a pyramid. You've probably seen pyramids through cephal as well. So it's the same idea. If you can build that solid foundation on your pyramid, um, you really should have less of those um, negative uh, behaviors to deal with and hopefully have to spend less time um, disciplining kids 
Um, and uh, there's good reason to do that because we actually know that the more time teachers spend disciplining behaviors in their classroom, the more misbehaviors you see. So the more you can really um, build up and strengthen your, your positive foundation, um, the less you have to worry about discipline. Um, so, um, and I think I've covered all of those other points, um, except this last one, which is just as I mentioned, is a, a really important principle um, with young kids in general, but probably even more so with young kids with ADHD, is that you really only want to work on one or two things at a time. So you don't want to have a whole sheet with five different behavior goals. It's just really too much. Um, so you want to keep it simple, one or two things at a time. What are some principles of effective consequences? Well, one of the principles is to really think about a whole discipline plan. So not just, well, um, I will ignore this, or I will use this consequence, or I will redirect this, or I will use a timeout for that. But to think about how you're going to use those things together in a hierarchy. And I have an example I'll show you in a minute, which I think will be helpful. Um, another principle here, um, and this one is also from The Incredible Years, which I referenced in the bottom, is that um, you want to think about using the least intrusive strategy first. So by least intrusive, I mean whatever the strategy is that will be effective that will interrupt your instruction in the classroom the least, that will um, not require you to force a child to uh, serve a timeout, let's say, until you have, which is probably the most intrusive um, discipline strategy you can use, sometimes very needed and sometimes very useful, but also very intrusive, that that's probably going to be on the top of your hierarchy, and you should really be trying a lot of other steps before that. Um, another really important principle is that um, consequences should be brief, um, immediate, and followed by another learning opportunity. So we know, I, I mentioned earlier, um, I think I mentioned earlier with kids with ADHD, the immediacy is really important. That's important with incentives and it's important with consequences. And the reason for that is because um, part of what happens with ADHD is that the connection between the behavior and the consequence is lost really, really quickly. So if a child does something and you are busy on the other side of the room and it takes three or four minutes to come over and address it, um, that connection, which is necessary for learning to occur, that connection may be lost. And really the whole point of discipline is to teach the child to do something differently, but if in fact it's been too long and sometimes too long is counted in minutes for young ADHD kids, um, then you're actually not accomplishing what your goal was with the discipline in the first place. So really pretty immediate um, is, is what you want to strive for. Um, and also the principle that smaller, more frequent consequences are actually much more effective than larger, less frequent um, consequences. And of course, a general, um, general principle with, which fits with the attention, um, strategic attention principle I was talking about earlier is that um, you want to um, uh, make sure to not give your negative attention to behaviors that are problems. So that's a, a really important principle during any sort of discipline encounter because it's really easy. These behaviors can be very frustrating and kids can do some um, uh, pretty challenging things that, you know, can make the best of us lose our cool. So the more you can 
hide that from kids and keep your cool, stay calm, um, avoid those power struggles, um, the more effective whatever the consequence you're using will actually be. So the next page here is actually a discipline hierarchy I wanted to give you an example of. And um, I will say that this particular example is probably more developmentally appropriate for older kids. You'll see some things referenced in there like color cards, which of course you're not going to be thinking about with preschoolers. Um, but the general idea that you're starting with, with your clear rules and maybe you're redirecting and ignoring or reminding and using consequences. Um, and then you have time out, and then my favorite step in the discipline hierarchy, step number seven, which is that um, after a discipline encounter with a child, you you want to be thinking, well, um, the uh, this discipline encounter doesn't end until there's a new learning opportunity for the child and something positive that they can get re-engaged with and something I can find to give them some positive attention for. All right, last part of this presentation, and this is about teaching self-regulation. So I want to go back to this idea, um, and I want to frame this as um, in terms of what teachers can do that um, that we call co-regulation. And uh, there's some, some work that myself and some colleagues have been doing for the administration of children and families. If you're interested, the reference is on the bottom. So co-regulation is the idea that caregivers can support young kids' self-regulation development um, by teaching and coaching self-regulation within the context of a warm, responsive relationship and a structured and predictable environment. So we've talked about these first two things for a bit, and so I want to spend a few minutes in thinking about um, well, how would I actually teach self-regulation skills and what actually are self-regulation skills? So here are some examples. Um, and you can see in bold in parentheses, that's sort of the, I guess, the more technical skill, if you will. Um, but then um, what uh, the rest of the bullet points are is really framed in terms of actually in frame of how I might uh, communicate with that child. So I might point out when they're waiting, or I might say, you're really using your patience muscles today, waiting for all our plates to be passed out, or something like that. Um, I might talk about how they're staying focused and thinking hard. And again, I would try and catch them doing that before they got off track. Um, if they are getting frustrated and stuck, uh, maybe it's simply something they're playing with in a center. I might point out, hey, um, you, look, you're trying in a different way. You're trying to solve a problem. That's a huge self-regulation skill of cognitive flexibility. And then, of course, there's social flexibility, which can also be challenging for a lot of young kids with ADHD who want to do their idea and nobody else's, is actually um, giving your friend's idea a try. And then, of course, persistence, which is really um, really probably a core deficit area for kids with ADHD, so one that when we talk about wanting to build skills, that actually would be on the top of your list to really build that persistence. Um, and then, of course, is the emotional literacy and um, emotion regulation um, pieces that I've mentioned as well. So what would you do to actually teach self-regulation? So one simple thing is to talk about it and, and to model that behavior. So uh, perhaps the classroom had a really hard time lining up and everybody was really loud and you're frustrated and it's maybe it's okay to say I'm feeling a little frustrated because the class was loud. 
Um, I think I'm going to take a couple of deep breaths and see if I can calm myself down before we go walk down the hallway. What a beautiful modeling of self-regulation. Um, the strategy I was sort of giving you a flavor of a moment ago when you describe what the child is doing that is showing self-regulation, um, we call that coaching, and I'll show you another slide of that in just a minute. Um, of course, praising and incentives for self-regulation and lots of practice opportunities. So uh, what do I mean by that? I mean actually spending time practicing doing the behaviors that you want the child to do. So practicing walking down the hallway quietly, practicing um, raising a quiet hand, those sorts of things. Um, and of course, um, setting the child up in, for success in a way I was talking about with um, circle time and how long you, you plan that for. Um, here's a little bit more detail on coaching self-regulation. So it's really like um, the metaphor of um, like a sports coach. So it would be sort of an ongoing narrative or commentary like um, I see you, like this little girl maybe, um, uh, using your ignoring muscles, your friend accidentally bumped into you, but I see you're looking really strong, um, and it looks like you were um, going to um, keep walking quietly down the hallway. Um, that would be an example, and we could do that with, with lots of different kinds of areas. And what I would do with the child with ADHD is I would, again, pick one or two things um, that you're struggling with and really focus on those one or two behaviors that you're going to really work on in a positive way by noticing, commenting, praising, and maybe even developing an incentive system around. Um, another point here is um, if the child is having trouble regulating, um, the suggestion um, for addressing that would be to actually give a coping statement or making pos a positive prediction. So let's say um, if another child did bump into them in line, you might say, um, you look a little upset, but I see that you're keeping your body calm, or I bet you're going to keep your hands to yourself. What a good choice that is. All right, so I'm wrapping up here just with a note. Um, I'm happy to, again, provide any information on sort of other specific resources or teacher programs, but these are, are a couple that have a little bit of research that sort of connects the benefit of these things for young kids with ADHD. To be honest, um, not a lot of the programs that we think are very helpful have done a ton of research specific to ADHD. Um, young kids with um, uh, in preschool sorts of settings, but we certainly have a lot of reason to think that they're they're very helpful with exactly the types of behaviors that most teachers are concerned about in their classrooms. So again, um, if you all are interested in um, hearing more about some specific programs, um, feel free to um, to submit a question, and I can um, talk a little bit more about that. So I have beyond my time, and I'm going to stop and um, see what kind of questions you all have. Great. Thank you, Dr. Murray. That was some really great information, really comprehensive. We actually have a couple of questions that are asking about examples for some of the specific strategies you gave. So I'm just going to run through a couple of those uh, quickly first. So the first one is a teacher who has set up um, a version of a calm down area in their classroom before, but a challenge she ran to is that other children were wanting to use the area to avoid tests that they didn't want to do. Um, okay. So could you provide some tips on how to maybe set up that calm down area um, properly and in an effective manner? Yes, yes. So 
Um, that is um, a challenge that comes up sometimes, so that's a really good question. So um, oftentimes um, what you might need to do when you're setting up an area like that is to actually create some rules um, around the calm down area. So those rules might be um, related to um, uh, asking to go, asking permission to go to the calm down area. Um, or, um, you know, for a child who's upset and they can't really communicate that, maybe you have like a little, um, a car that they could use to come show you. Um, maybe you have some rules about how, um, how long a child can stay in there. But again, I, I would probably, um, for some kids they may need longer than others. So, um, a strategy you might use is sort of, when you're observing a child to be calm enough is to maybe sort of checking in on them periodically to say, uh, to give them an invitation to rejoin the classroom, again, to rejoin an activity that hopefully is, is going to be fun and engaging for them, because you don't want it to be um, an avoidance of some other sort of um, um, activity. Um, you know, you might want to think about what materials um, you have in there, and um, the point of the materials should be for calming down, and if they're just um, for entertainment value, then maybe you could think about um, some different sorts of materials. So those, those are a couple of thoughts. Great. Thank you. Um, one of the other scenarios you were talking about was circle time and all the examples with that. And we have one participant who gave an example of how her son couldn't really sit well in circle time because he couldn't mm -hmm. sit and he couldn't focus on the teacher. And so for mm -hmm. that, the watching and the listening kind of meant multitasking. And so yep. she was wondering, could you comment on um, maybe avoiding multitasking or you know why that's difficult, and what are some strategies teachers can use um, to avoid to avoid multitasking? Yeah, so um, that's a good question. So one of the things that sort of it it uh, it it reminds me is important to point out is that um, actually the the ADHD um, symptom of um, difficulty listening is actually is actually defined um, in the DSM as um, not appearing to listen because, in fact, um, with many ADHD kids, they actually are listening, but they sure don't look like it. And so one of the things that I might encourage teachers to think about is, um, is the child actually attending um, even if he doesn't appear to be doing so? So... Um, so one of, if you're talking about sort of uh, listening versus eyes on the teacher, I would probably prioritize eyes on teacher because that's more concrete. Um, and I would do that maybe um, with allowing the child more space and movement or, you know, allowing him to stand up if it's defined, you know, something like that. Um, I would limit the amount of time, of course, he's asked to focus. Um, but um, I would I would um, give some leeway in terms of a child looking like they're listening, um, and you know one of the things again that you can do is to um, you know ask the child um, a question, not to sort of call him out or get him in trouble or prove your point, but to ask him a question to engage him in the instruction that's going on. So if he's starting to look like he's losing focus, maybe that's 
the exact point in time um, you ask him a question about what he likes to do with the such and such a thing that you're reading the story about. So multiple strategies that I think you can, you can use um, in that situation. Great, thank you. We also have someone who was asking if you could give an example of a real-life um, classroom incentive situation. Sure. Well, first off, I can give you some examples of things not to do. <laughs> so the things I would not do um, for preschoolers with ADHD is to have a weekly chart where every day they get a sticker for um, following all the rules and doing every single thing that they're supposed to do all day long. Um, and then they're supposed to do it all week long before they get to go to the prize box. That's just um, uh, not specific enough. It doesn't break it down, and it's not setting them up for success. So the point of incentive systems is to teach a new behavior that's difficult or challenging. Um, and so um, if you were going to use a sticker system, I would break that down into um, a particular time of day, let's say, where the child is having um, special difficulties. Let's, the, I keep using the same examples because they're classic examples, but walking down the hallway, um, maybe coming into class in the morning and getting settled in, um, circle time, those types of transition times, and maybe target an incentive around a very sort of specific behavior in a very short period of time. Um, and um, you can, um, you would want to set it up so that if a child was going to earn a reward, that they earned it pretty quickly. Um, so for preschoolers, that would be no later than the end of the day before they go home because by the next day they come back, that was just yeah, that was yesterday. It was like it was years ago. So again, that learning connection is not going to be there. Um, for many kids with ADHD, so let's say three to five, you've got a big range there. So for 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 a three-year-old who are just going to be, be starting to be able to make some of those connections between behavior and consequences, you want it to be pretty immediate. So sticker chart might not even be the best example. Um, you might want to do something as simple as um, you know, when you see the child um, doing whatever that behavior is, maybe you just use a hand stamp right there immediately. Um, I have some teachers who, um, again, to mix it up and keep things interesting, which is always good with ADHD so kids don't get bored with things, they might use like a little smelly chapstick and they just put a little wipe of the smelly chapstick on the child's hand and he can smell it for a couple minutes. Now, hopefully it's not too distracting, but just to give you an idea that the more immediate and, and sort of keeping it small and brief, it doesn't matter so much what you do, but you want to set it up in a way that the child can be successful and earn the incentive. If you've set up a system and it's been three or four days and the child hasn't earned anything yet, um, then you need to rethink your system. So all kids, all of us can have bad days um, sometimes. Um, so if it's one bad day, maybe two, but really by the third day I, w I would rethink your plan and, and break it down to allow the child to be more successful because it's only when they are able to be successful that they're actually going to have some learning and be able to do the thing that you want them to do. Great, thank you. We have two questions about IEPs for 
students this age, and one was in reference to your discipline structure, and mm -hmm. they noticed that the IEP was number six mm -hmm. on the discipline structure, and we're wondering sort of how does it really fit into the discipline structure, and the other IEP question was really just a general, um, if you have any suggestions as IEPs and accommodations that might be most helpful for preschool children. Sure. Um, so in terms of um, the, the first question, which was related to the discipline hierarchy, um, uh, again, I think that that is an example that is um, generally more relevant for older kids. But I think the place marker there, what, what it is designed to indicate in terms of um, wh what would occur with that step is that you would want to think if you have tried all these steps and let's say it's been, um, it's been an aggressive behavior and you've actually been using timeout, you've been using timeout effectively, and you still, after a couple of weeks, are not feeling like the behavior is under control, that is the time to bring in more resources. So part of what IEP sort of stands for, symbolizes in this hierarchy here, is that you want to consult with whoever, if you have a preschool behavior consultant in your program, um, uh, you want to think about um, bringing in some additional resources. If you haven't already, conference with the parent to maybe talk about um, a whole a home school plan, um, you would do that. Hopefully you've actually done that piece before, but that's where you reach out for some additional resources. Um, so in terms of actually qualifying kids for services, so, um, so again, I think that part of the benefit for doing that is that you can tap into broader resources for yourself as the classroom teacher. So if a child is um, found to be eligible for exceptional children's services, um, then um, they may bring in um, a consultant who can actually sit down with you and help to develop a plan and sort of more formally um, uh, think about other referrals if they're needed. So some potential benefits there. The challenge with ADHD, of course, is that um, we can diagnose ADHD in preschoolers, um, but it's, it's challenging to do that um, accurately. Um, and a lot of people just don't want to do it. Um, we, when I was at the Duke ADHD program, we were one of the few places in this area um, that would because we had some specialized training, but I don't think a lot of places really feel comfortable with that. Um, so oftentimes what may happen um, if a child, uh, if a teacher feels like a child um, needs to be um, evaluated for services is that at a younger age you're going to be talking about a disability category of um, uh, developmental disabilities, which is sort of um, a little nonspecific, but, but okay for preschoolers. Um, either that or sometimes, um, as, as, as uh, funny as it may seem on the surface, a lot of ADHD young kids actually end up being served through speech and language services because um, we do see higher rates of those concerns among kids with ADHD. Um, it actually is not nearly so important about how a child might end up being, getting qualified and access um, to access services because once they do, um, they can actually, if they are found to qualify for an IEP, for example, then um, that IEP could incorporate goals to address um, behavioral goals as well. Um, so I don't know if that completely addressed the question, but that was sort of what I know about IEPs for preschool ADHD.
Thank you. I think I think it definitely addressed it um, well enough. And we are actually coming to our last question. And so we have for our last question, we have someone who's asking about: Are there ways to have peers, the other students in the preschool classroom, help give support to the children with the ADHD behaviors? Yeah, um, I, I think that that's a nice strategy. Um, I mean, I think I would think about that in in a, in a couple of ways. Probably the way I think would be I would use the most is thinking about who are those positive peer models, potential peer models that I have in my classroom. So who are those students who may be um, calmer, who may be less reactive to a child who likes to be very physical, who maybe gets in their face or is a little bit loud. Some kids can tolerate that, okay, and other kids not. So first off, I would think about, and actually I like this question because it also implies that whoever asked it is also really thinking about um, peer relations for those kids, which are also can be such an area of concern and one that the more we can um, build supports with, um, the better. Um, so, in terms of in terms of, um, are there sort of other specific ways to incorporate peers into um, uh, sort of behavior plans with kids? The one uh, the one specific thing that I would suggest at this age is, um, and actually the whole class could work on this, is um, complementing each other. Um, so one of the things that you could do is really um, work on giving compliments, um, not in a way that sort of um, points out a particular child as having a problem, but really encourages the class to to notice when their friends are doing the right thing and are taking their time with their work, when they're keeping their hands to themselves, so those, those sorts of things. So thinking about positive peer role models to pair them with and place them in proximity with, and then really sort of encouraging, um, encouraging, um, complimenting, I think, would be some nice things you could try. Great, thank you. Well, well, I definitely want to thank you for your insights and suggestions today, Dr. Murray, and thank you to all of our participants for joining us. You're welcome. Again, thank you to Dr. Murray and thank you to all of you for joining us. This concludes our webcast.